the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Planted with Sarah Pion podcast. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today I have my friend Roger McNamee on the show. Roger has worn many hats throughout his life. He's been a tech investor, he's an author, a musician, and a political activist. And I'm really excited to have you here today. We have a lot to talk about. Sarah, it is so much fun to be with you. I've I've watched with great enthusiasm as you have, you know, not just created this podcast, but had such a profound impact on the community, the cannabis community in California, which I think has gotten the short end of the political stick far too often. And I think you're you're a voice of reason and sanity in a world that desperately needs both of us. Thank you so much. I try to be. <laughs> I'm not perfect, but I definitely try to be. And we have a lot of work to do. And kind of going back on that, like when we, because I know you were you were really active around the time of Prop 64 being on the ballot. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was in 2014, I was reading something and came across a statistic that just completely blew my mind. And it was that people of color, particularly black people, were arrested and incarcerated at three times their rate of usage of cannabis. And I'm going, oh my God, that is, you know, it's the sort of thing that I probably should have known and didn't. And I was really embarrassed. Now, I grew up in a family where my parents were really involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s. When I was nine years old, I met Jackie Robinson at a civil rights event in upstate New York. And the thing is, in my family, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was sort of the top of the pyramid in terms of people you really admired and respected. But number two was Jackie Robinson. And so at nine years old, I was a baseball fan already. And I knew he was a baseball player, but I met him in the context of civil rights. And in my family, that was a big deal. And so in 2014, when I saw this thing, I realized that cannabis reform was going to be my opportunity to engage in civil rights in a way analogous to what my parents had done. And so I started to find out how I could get engaged. This was before Prop 64 had been uh, put on the ballot, Mm -hmm. but I was looking for ways. And so when that whole thing got started, um, I started calling people and just saying, hey, look, you know, I'm a tech investor in Silicon Valley and I want to get engaged on this thing. And I reached an incredible person in the lieutenant governor's office because Gavin Newsom was the lieutenant governor at the time and his office really was in Sacramento, the one that had the, uh, was charged with this. And I, I got handed to somebody in that office who said, here's the thing, dude, you're an investor. You look really different from a career perspective than a lot of the people who are coming here and you will be an enormous help to us if you come in in the way that people expect you to come in. So you need to find some things in the cannabis business to invest in. And you need to get engaged uh, by emphasizing how important it is that all of all of this black market stuff be cleansed mm-hmm. and brought into the normal economy. And so I went looking for things to invest in. And I, the first thing I went to look at was Harborside. Because you know, they were the, the original dispensary in the Bay Area. You know, Steve D'Angelo was a, a cult figure. Right. And, uh, so I went to meet them. And I, I, I made a total of three investments. But Harborside was the one that was... Um, it was local and it was the most established. The other two, one was a startup that was doing software for uh, managing, uh, essentially it was software for managing cannabis businesses. So everything from farms through dispensaries. Oh, okay. And their big focus had been on compliance. And so 
uh, they helped uh, dispensaries be compliant. And the theory was that as the business became legitimate, vertical integration would become increasingly attractive and people would have to manage these businesses the same way you manage any other kind of business. And the difference was because it was still federally illegal, none of the people who made software for, you know, what's called ERP, enterprise resource plan, none of those people were going to sell the cannabis businesses. So it had to be a cannabis specific thing. And I knew a lot about software. So that was a natural thing for me to do. And then I did an, another uh, small company. And, you know, that took me most of 2015 to find those people. Meanwhile, you know, Prop 64 has got its signatures. It's moving towards getting on the ballot and all that. And, you know, we start to use the band as one of the communication systems. So I'm in a band called Moon Alice. And Moon Alice has a history that is intimately tied to California's cannabis reform movement. The band's first concert, which was on Cinco de Mayo of 2007, was at a medical cannabis uh, event in front of City Hall in San Francisco. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, and we're, there, these are the day, 2007 was the period when, you know, nothing was legal, right? Mm -mm. And so just being part of, of, of things like that was, you know, was an act of courage. And the point is our band, that's literally the first show we ever play. And we played at every cannabis event that we could get invited to after that. And my wife and a dear friend of ours, my former business partner, Bono, wrote a song called It's 420 Somewhere. And the band recorded it, put it out, and did this thing on Facebook to encourage people to download the song. Wait a, minute. Wait a minute. I, I knew about the song, but I didn't realize that Ann and Bono wrote it together. That's awesome. <laughs> and so, so we've, well, we, we've never talked about Bono being part of it. Yeah. It just, but it's, it's a simple fact. So he and Ann wrote the song. So we put it out and we put this thing on Facebook in the very early days when they're just beginning advertising, mm -hmm. where if you click this thing, you could get a free download. And 4.6 million downloads later, it took three years, but 4.6 million downloads later, we had set the all-time record for downloads from a band's own website. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a thing in their archive to commemorate this song. So we <laughs> have great. this song, it's on our first, you know, and, and it's like, it's, it, it's on our first EP and, mm. um, which is the second album we put out. We put out an album with T-Bone Burnett in, in, I think, 2008. And then we start putting out these EPs. That's on the first one. And it, it just, the thing takes off. And we're in this position where the band is called Moon Alice. And T-Bone Burnett had said to us, you have to have a legend. You have to claim it. There's got to be a backstory for the band. And so... All of this gets deeply intertwined with California's cannabis culture. And so the, at the end of each show, I do a legend, which is tied to the poster for that show. We have a poster for every show. So we've now had 1,300, I think, eight posters in 15 yeah. years. And, and the legend usually refers to cannabis in some way. And so the band gets involved with Prop 64, and we do a whole bunch of things. And we wind up having this event at Sweetwater, you know, like a month before, because there's a lot of disinformation coming out about it. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of the disinformation is spread by folks who want to remain in the black market world. And I felt like the black market thing, even though the economics of it were very attractive to a lot of people, there are environmental reasons, right? You don't want people converting state parks and national parks into agriculture and then diverting creeks to right. water them and then patrolling them with guns and having, you know, things to keep people out. So we thought there were a lot of reasons why, look, it's really time. If we want to protect basically black and brown people from being arrested at three times their rate of usage, the flip side of this is that the folks who are growing the stuff need to accept that, you know, there's a lot of demand for this product. It'll be okay to move it into the legitimate market. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the transition may be awkward, but let's go through it together. And let's do it because we want to respect our black and brown brothers and sisters who are being arrested. And so that was my thought process. And, you know, got deeply involved in it. And, you know, Election Day 2016 is coming along, right? And we're thinking the biggest thing we got to worry about is whether Prop 64 is going to pass. The last thing I was expecting was to celebrate Prop 64 and then be having to deal with the presidential election. I cried. Oh, it was, I mean, it was, you know, we, 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 we invited a whole bunch of friends over on election night to, to do this thing together to celebrate Prop 64. And, you know, it was not a happy evening at all. No, no. I was at a party and, and everybody was, I just, everybody stopped and you just saw people just sobbing and in disbelief. And I was actually at the point where I was like, I'll give it back. Can we give it back and, and well, have a do-over? Let's, let's just. Well, and a do-over is actually a good idea because in fact, the implementation of proxy war has been, I think, the best you can say is it has been uneven. Yes. And, you know, I think it has had a lot of self-defeating restrictions placed on it. You know, create, you know, having the, the bureaucracy that deals with alcohol play a role here has not been optimal. And imposing distribution rules modeled on alcohol has not been optimal. Giving um, counties the ability to opt out has not been optimal. Mm-mm. You know, the, the complete absence of support for, uh, you know, converting the business from cash into credit, that part has been suboptimal. And then from a civil rights perspective, no allowances have been made to have any kind of restitution to the folks who have been harmed by the criminalization of cannabis. And I just, in my mind, that those are all things that that we could have done better on. And they all leave me with a, a bitter taste in my mouth because cannabis being legal is actually super important. Mm-hmm. But th- what we got was not actually a thing that is legal so much as a thing that's in a purgatory somewhere between illegal and legal. And, and the notion that it is treated in the way it is treated when alcohol has all these advantages and oxycontin and all these other things have all their advantages, things that are genuinely harmful. Right. Right have protected status relative to cannabis. And that is, in my opinion, it, it's it's a tragedy, a tragedy and something all of us need to work very hard to fix. Yeah. And you're looking at it from a civil rights perspective. When we see the high taxation, that creates a larger traditional illicit market. We also didn't do a great job in creating an ease of entry into the legal market. We did a great disservice to a lot of people through that. And even, you know, though the attempts with social equity programs, especially by my colleagues that work so hard to make sure that these are maintained and grow, you know, I, I give them so much credit for their hard work. But from the policy perspective, we should be doing so much more. They, there's, we're well, lacking. The, the way I think, the way I think about it is this way: is that if you had no fundamental limitations mm-hmm. on market access, so if the whole state ran the way that LA County ran for the first few years post Prop 64, yeah, where where it's essentially, you know, just entrepreneurial capitalism run amok right people could start up and go down that sounds like oklahoma tax the (laughs) the tax the tax thing actually would have been a good thing not a bad thing Mm -hmm. right because if people have a chance to actually be successful taxes are completely reasonable the problem that you have in this world is that your cost of running the business is insanely high because it's all cash 
I mean, that part is nuts. Right. And and you're t- it's also insanely high because the way things get distributed is crazy. The way the licenses get distributed is crazy. So the whole thing is designed to prevent the cannabis industry from flourishing. Right. And that is, that's an own goal. We didn't have to do it that way. Yeah. And we don't have to tolerate it because you go to a, a state like Colorado or even Oregon and self-evidently their approach makes way more sense than the approach in California. And if you look at how much of the industry happens in California, it's insane that we have the, these barbaric rules when, which effectively keep 90% of California's cannabis industry in the black market. Right. You know, because there is so much of it's grown here. What you really want to do is to have the laws structured in a way where the state is really proud of this industry. It is a form of agriculture where the water usage is actually relatively reasonable in comparison to the value created. Mm-hmm. Unlike, say, alfalfa, which is a giant crop in California, right. uses an unbelievable amount of water, and where essentially the product is shipped to China. It makes no sense at all. We're effectively shipping our water to China, which is, you know, stupid. And so, you know, California supplies cannabis to the whole country. And pretending like that's not true doesn't help anybody. No, no, it doesn't. But let me ask you this, just going back to the money thing, because, you know, I, I understand like you, you don't wear your money hat as much anymore because you're in. Your- no, I don't wear it at all anymore. To be, to be clear, I became a political activist yeah. in 2016 and I haven't worn a money hat really since 2012. So um, it's, you know, things, things in my life are super different, but I know a lot about that world. And, and way more blissful. Why politi- huh? I said way more blissful. Well, no, actually, political activism is the most frustrating thing on earth. Our system is really well, broken. And fighting, fighting entrenched power, which is what I've been doing for the last six years, is, you know, that's not something you do for fun. No, no, you do for the love of it. But look, humor me, humor me for a moment. When we're looking at taxation, because excise tax is hit every time the cannabis changes hands, they've eliminated the cultivation tax, at least temporarily. And then we have state and county taxes or state and sometimes city taxes, depending on what municipality you're in. That's a lot of taxation, but because it does drive people to the illicit market or the traditional market, as I like to refer to it, don't you think in the big picture, the state would make much more money if they lowered taxes because you'd have more people. Oh, definitely. It would benefit yeah, but, them. But, but the, but the, the trick is to recognize the taxes are one piece of a whole system designed to repress the industry. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, and no, no, Sarah, you're obviously correct. What I'm saying is that if the industry had the ability to operate, you know, inside the economy, like any other industry, mm-hmm. so it could, you know, you get bank accounts, credit, you know, all that kind of stuff. You could use credit cards, all the things that you'd like to do. And, if there were no limitations on where you could operate, I mean, obviously there you could have zoning restrictions, but right. fundamentally you could be in every county, and you know you could sell the products you wanted to sell. You could buy them from the people you want to buy them from. All that. So if it, it, you know, so you treat it just like anything else. If you mm-hmm. did that, then you could put the taxes at the appropriate stage of the process, as you do in every other industry, right? And it would work. But the way the taxation is structured now, it's designed to prevent the industry from prospering. And it has succeeded admirably in that goal. Yeah. And from an economic point of view, though, if you just focus on the taxes to the exclusion of everything else, you miss all the other factors that are contributing to repressing this industry. That's true. And then you add another tax hardship with the 280E problem, where they can't claim the same well, things. And even in the state, well, they that's haven't the, made that adjustment. No. And again, that part, the federal stuff right. is insane, yeah. okay? And the fact that the country continues to pretend that cannabis should be illegal and, you know, a felony and therefore not part of the legitimate economy, right? The Schedule, schedule 1 treatment, mm-hmm. I mean, that was created for a political a goal in the 70s and 
it's never been corrected. The lack of courage that represented by that non-decision is typical of so much of what we see today and how we got into this really difficult place we're in. And the one thing I would say to everybody who's listening here is to recognize that politics is ugly, but we have to participate. Because if we don't participate, then we leave it to the people who have an economic interest in bad outcomes. So from our perspective, we all, we not just must vote, we must actually engage in the process enough to force change. I mean, one of the points I make whenever I'm talking to groups of students is that people under the age of 30 are the largest voting block in the country. They vote at something like 22, 24%. If they voted at 70%, their priorities would become the policy of the United States. So forgiving student loans, focusing on the environment, focusing on reducing damage from guns. Yeah. Those things would immediately go from off the, the list of priorities to the top of the list of priorities. And, you know, the, the whole system is structured now to discourage people from engaging with yes and we have to we have to resist that and you know it's an act of political courage to say i don't like the status quo but i'm not going to let it discourage me i am going to register to vote i'm not only going to vote i'm going to get all of my friends to vote and i'm going to learn enough about the issues that are in front of us so that i actually do the things that need to be done now to restore democracy because we're exactly. we're in a bad place right now yeah we and, are and the people who benefit from the status quo are trying to do, either discourage us from voting or prevent us from voting and we can't let them win that yeah and and they're doing the long game because they're they're now changing education banking on they know that the largest population exactly. is this group it's it's frightening. And, and I think, you know, the fact that we aren't teaching civics as much in school and people don't really understand when you pass policy, like how that comes into play and the structure around it. One of the things that after legalization we had was a lot of people who use cannabis medicinally came in and they're really upset at how high prices were and how they couldn't afford their medicine or just the way things were running and they would take it out on the dispensaries or blame the companies. And, and that was when um, I started saying, you know, hey, the people who are creating these policies, they have a fixed idea of who you are as a cannabis consumer. And it's time to change that and start really engaging with these people who count on our votes for their jobs. Well, the thing is that I look at this and go, you know, I'm I'm a big time deadhead, right? And I I grew up in a at a time when you know the Grateful Dead were going from being a San Francisco band that did acid tests to being a national touring band that played to people my age all over the country. And you know, one of the things that people had a, an image of what deadheads looked like the kind of crunchy granola, uh, veggie burrito you know, travel around a VW bus thing. But in reality, the community of deadheads was unbelievably diverse. And you found deadheads everywhere. And you saw that when Jerry died, right? The stories the next day quoted all these politicians and artists, and, you know, not just musicians, but people in every walk of life because they'd had that level of impact. Right. And cannabis is the same way. That cannabis is a universal and the reality is you don't have to be a user of cannabis to appreciate why those who either want it or need it should be able to have it. You know, I am a male, but I believe women should have control of their reproductive rights. You know, I mean, that's a pretty basic human value. And, you know, the notion that we're only supposed to care about the things that affect us personally. Mm -hmm. I, that's a very bad way to live. I think we're all better off if we sit there and think about the world we want to live in. You know, 
is it going to be a world full of rules and narrow things that limit our options or a one where the rules are designed to maximize our options and you know do the rules respect our human rights or do they limit them and right now that debate is ongoing and yeah. cannabis is not the core piece of it but if you think they aren't coming for cannabis after they're done going after women's reproductive rights you're not paying attention i mean you know they want to reverse every good thing that's happened in the last 50 years actually every good thing that's happened since the new deal right and that's the truth that's what that's what we're up against and there is nowhere to hide if these people are successful you know they are not a majority they are a minority but they're very well organized and very well funded and what they want is to return us to a world dominated by white men who impose their view on everyone else and you know that's a pretty simple thing to decide which side of that discussion you want to be on and then once you decide which side john you have to decide do you want you know do you care enough to engage in the process to ensure that your vision has a, a you know is given voice in the public square yeah i feel like in some ways well, no i feel it very much that the past six years there's been a lot of attempts by people who do not have the public's best interest at heart to wear people out and create despair so that they can't fight. So I think it's been going on a lot longer than six years, but for well, the last yeah, for six sure. Years, they've they've been insane they've been insanely successful, right? Yeah. Before that, before that, you know, they, they would get a win in a place that wasn't super obvious. Mm -hmm. But but they were unable to impose their view broadly. Now they've got all the pieces in place. And so each thing that they do takes away something really important that we spent in some cases centuries fighting for and you know i don't know how far back they want to turn the clock but i'm not even remotely interested in finding out nor am you know, I. I think it's important to it's important to stop the regression as quickly as we possibly can yeah and that's yeah. going to take collective action we're going to have to sit there and recognize that Politics is not like falling in love. Politics is actually something very pragmatic. Politics is, is about accepting compromise that gets you closer to your goal. And recognizing that we're going to vote for politicians we do not love because they're way better than the politicians we hate. And we're going to then have to encourage those people to be their best selves. It is a beautiful thing to watch what's happened to Biden this summer as you know, I mean, most recently with student loans, right? But before that, with the environmental law, and before that, with, you know, the the other pieces that passed, I mean, Congress actually had a very good summer. And a bunch of things happened that fulfilled campaign promises Biden had made, and which he had not been active until very recently. But when push came to shove, we actually got groundbreaking progress in areas where there had been none right i mean the 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 gun regulation isn't a, you know it's not perfect in fact it's not even great but there had been nothing for like i don't know 20 years yeah, we have now to finally start. We have something yeah it's it's a start right and the student loan thing it's just a little bit but for the people who are affected it's real and you know the notion that it's okay to give tax cuts to super rich people, but not okay to forgive, you know, student loans to young people just at the beginning of their careers, particularly given that the student loans are, I mean, that whole thing is a scam. Yeah. Now, I think there was probably a better way to do it. Absolutely. You know, I personally, you know, I think he could have gone after the interest rates rather than going after the principal. But the, the point here is it's a start and now we can have legitimate debates and move forward. And the thing is, People should be less discouraged today than they were six months ago because 
the voices that got Biden elected over Trump have had a much bigger impact on policy in Washington than we had any right to expect, right? I mean, recent experience is that, you know, black people, women, and young people are the secret to getting Democrats elected. And then the minute the person gets elected, they focus on the status quo. And Biden has been forced to pay attention to women, black people, and young people. And that's really, really good news. And it should be encouraging to everyone. And by the way, I think the whole thing translates, you know, to cannabis if we all make our voices heard. And I think that's one of the huge problems. I mean, sir, your great value is that you stand up and you bring people together. You cause collective action to happen around this issue. And, you know, we need a hundred more people like you who then turn their focus to Sacramento, which you're doing, and then to Washington because political action, there's no alternative here. No, there isn't. It's not. I also think like for people, especially like young people who may be really interested in cannabis legislation, that it's a, it's a great opportunity to draw people into the bigger picture as well. It goes both ways. Exactly. It, it, it's the simple question the country faces today mm-hmm. is, do we believe in human autonomy or not? Do we believe each of us is entitled to make our own choices? If you go back to the founding fathers, they talked a lot about the right to self-determination. And there was a big debate in the Continental Congress over whether or not to have a Bill of Rights, because the people who were against it, Alexander Hamilton was against it. His notion was, well, if you have a Bill of Rights, that actually narrows things because it gets, it creates the debate about whether something is legitimate. If it's not in the Bill of Rights, then maybe you don't have it as a right. And his notion was you have all rights and you might have a list of things you don't have rights to, but otherwise you have rights. And that debate is actually come back to the fore because we have perverted the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment in particular in ways that I do not think the Founding Fathers intended and which quite clearly harm way more people than they help. And, you know, the, the, the way the 14th Amendment has been interpreted to give corporations personhood is nuts. Yeah. Right? The idea that a corporation has all the benefits of being a human, but none of the responsibilities. Right? So, corp- you know, Facebook, which is the company I have been, you know, trying to reform for the last six years, right? it, it was accused by the United Nations of enabling an ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. It has been credibly accused of enabling voter suppression and election manipulation in 2016 and again in 2020 and around the world. It has very clearly played a huge role in undermining the country's response to a pandemic and in enabling interaction in Washington. And yet there is literally nothing going on to treat them, this corporation, as a person relative to all of that obviously felonious activity. And, you know, I look at that and I go, that's the product of a set of choices the country's made over the last 40 years. Yes, it is. And the question in front of this generation is, is that okay with you? Because guess what? It didn't used to be this way. It didn't used to be this way in my adult lifetime. And I believe it shouldn't be this way now and for sure shouldn't be this way in the future. And the only way to change that is through collective action. We got Proposition 64 passed because a lot of people with different interests came together with a big idea in mind. What we lacked was the political power to then, you know, once we had won the battle to fight the rest of the war, you know, to, to, you know, in a situation where the accident of, um, of the politics favoring a, 
you know, the alcohol industry, which was essentially threatened by the legalization of cannabis, right. giving them power over the, you know, the the infrastructure of a, of a new legitimate industry. That was a you bizarre know, all those compromise. Things, all, well, but my point is that it was a compromise that if you knew, understood the people and understood the politics made perfect sense. And our side didn't wasn't organized to fight that battle as effectively as it fought the the proposition because propositions are relatively straightforward mm -hmm. you know you can do that in a grassroots way it's really hard you know for grassroots to work in sacramento you have to have a lot of people willing to come out with signs and stand in the street for a few hours and you know that's not what we got no no it's not and i i, I mean it's it's amazing that people come with all their own ideas, but then collectively there are these groups that just want everything through one singular lens and that everybody should live a certain way. And I really believe that we need to it, – it's, it's, it's one of the things that I do with cannabis education because as we know – there's nothing more powerful than someone who's had a bad experience and then goes out and shares their experience with the world. And with cannabis, when we have people either saying it's all good or it's all bad, we have to talk about the gray areas. And so when I teach classes, I always say, not all of us, even though we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, not all of us will tolerate cannabis. And then the next thing I say is, and that's okay. Just because it doesn't work well for you doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have the opportunity to use it. It's, you know? Well, and this, this is the point. You know, I, I come back to women's reproductive health as just a perfect example of this, right? 49% of the population has only an indirect relationship to women's reproductive health, right? 51% right? live the experience. And the question is, the 49% who are men, are they going to be assholes or are they going to sit there and go, you know, actually, I need to be aligned. Women are, you know, they're our sisters, right? That their freedom, protecting their freedom is essential to protecting mine. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is, you know, you know, we talk about Bono with its 420 somewhere. I mean, he, he doesn't, cannabis is not his thing, but that, but he's completely with, the notion that people should be able to participate if they choose, right? No That's one should it. be forced. But, and again, everything in life has good, bad, and gray, right? There are ways, you know, to, to use things well. There are ways to abuse things. There's gray or in between. And the trick on all this is to educate people, to protect them from themselves when they need it. Mm -hmm. But really, really importantly, the drug war has caused so much more harm than it has created benefit, you know, in terms of gun violence, in terms of, of uh, what I would characterize as racially uh, biased policing, in terms of, uh, you know, harm to society broadly. You know, the notion that, that doing this well legalizing cannabis and then having it be part of the economy would somehow be worse than what we have now. I think the burden of proof is on the people who, who, who think it's going to be a problem because you look at a state like Colorado or a state like Oregon mm -hmm. where the laws have been implemented in Colorado very intelligently and in Oregon reasonably intelligently, certainly in comparison to California. And you go, what's that to like? Which part of this, you know, which part of this are you having trouble with? I mean, it, it's super obvious that the legalization movement where it has been successful, that the cannabis itself is not the problem. No, it's not. It never has right? been. The problem, well, exactly, okay? But now we have actual evidence of that. You know, I'll never forget going to speak with uh, Secretary Clinton when she was running for president and explaining to her taking the California study or Colorado study, excuse me, of, of taking people who had been on uh, Oxycontin and other narcotic-based painkillers and shifting them to cannabis-based painkillers and what that had done and the fact of doing it, you know, outside the system so there was no reimbursement and yet it was causing 
addiction to decline in ways that were measurable. You could actually see it in the numbers. It was causing uh, the number of overdose deaths to decline. You could see this in the number. And this is without any help, right? It wasn't part of Medicare. It wasn't part of the uh, veterans stuff. It was just people taking care of themselves and realizing that whatever the issues are with cannabis, they pale in comparison to opiates. And that if you could take care of your pain that way, that was clearly better. And Secretary Clinton completely got it. Yeah. And I mean, and so this is 2016. This is early in her campaign. And I worked on her for months. And the thing was, you know, if she had become president of the United States, we would have had reform, some form reform of the national marijuana laws. I'm, I'm campus laws i'm i i'm confident of that you know would it have been perfect no way because the politics aren't good enough. or it's but, human beings but, yeah. but but would but would they have done some things on medical i'm pretty sure she would have because the the opioid thing was so obviously a social disaster a public health disaster and you know trying something different was really the obvious solution right and you know running experiments i think at the bare minimum we would have had experiments and you think that that would have you know we, we don't get to rewrite history right we don't get to run the experiment again yeah. we don't know what actually would have happened but we do know what did happen we do and what did happen was not good well and i don't think that we have enough conversations about the historical aspects of prohibition because it was it was very racial, but it was also about industry, which is what we're seeing now with corporations being people. And back then it was, you know, hemp being a direct competitor to DuPont's plastics and our own, you know, William Randolph Hearst in the competition with lumber. So it was all of that plus a racist agenda. And Slinger was married into the DuPont family. There were just so many things that came into play that we keep making the same mistakes over and over where we give industry far more leeway that in turn ends up harming our people. And, you know, it, it all comes down to economic interests. It does. I mean, right. what would have and, happened if we know, had, if, if instead of going with the plastics, if they'd actually gotten into hemp, would we have, I just was watching this scary documentary last night about how much, that none of the plastic that we've produced since the 50s has, it's still with us. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is that it's why we all need to be engaged. Mm -hmm. The idea that this stuff doesn't matter is demonstrably wrong. I mean, right. look at climate change. Obviously, it matters enormously. And the people who, who understand and care are not effective enough in the political system to change the policies, in large part because so many people who do care about the issue just don't engage. So when we're looking at the future of cannabis... And of course, you know, the future of our country, but really dialing into cannabis, what are what are some of the things that you think we really need to first concentrate on to change? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to recognize that there is no change possible without political engagement from everybody who's involved. And one of the things that we did in Moon Alice, my band was to recognize that we were in a position to bring people together, to effectively convene our audience, our fan base, and engage with them to get them involved in the political process, initially around Prop 64. And each of us has a community that we're part of. And what I would encourage everybody who's listening here is to recognize that if everyone we know reaches out to everyone they know and they reach out to everyone they know and all those people engage in the process by voting maybe by attending a 
town hall meeting in their community or, you know, when their member of Congress comes to town or writing a letter, whatever it is. But they spend a little bit of time on this, on the issues that matter to them. So if cannabis is the issue that matters most to you, fantastic. Everyone in Congress, everyone in you know, the state legislature, the state Senate, your local officials all need to hear from them. Because at the end of the day, the loudest voices get the most attention. And what's incredibly clear is that cannabis polls really well in every geography in the country. What's equally clear is that the pharmaceutical industry alcohol industry and other people use their money and their political influence to prevent action that would improve the legal situation and the economic situation for the cannabis industry. Right. Right. And we have to offset that with numbers because we're never going to have the money. So we have to offset it with the numbers. Yeah. And that is a completely doable scenario. It is. And I think and, you know, people get intimidated, but, you know, there, if you don't, if you're interested in lobbying, a lot of the organizations like Normal and Americans for Safe Access have lobbying days where they'll do training so that you're, you actually understand the process and are well equipped. Well, take a, a good example is Indivisible, right? Indivisible was a thing created when, when Trump was elected to bring citizens together and give them the tools to essentially engage with their member of Congress on whatever issue mattered. And each little town, things would form, and they would go to their member of Congress office, and maybe it'd be 10 people or 12 people, and they would sit there until they got a meeting with Congress. And then they would set a schedule one, right? And, and the thing is, they didn't need to sit around. They could just schedule one because 10 people come to visit a member of Congress. I guarantee you, you're going to get a meeting. If right. You're there when the congressperson is there. And so they would talk about their issue. Well, indivisible can be applied here too. You can create indivisible groups that just care about cannabis. And, you know, they give you all that how-to and it's really easy. And it, it turns out it's kind of fun. I mean, this is what I discovered. I never engaged in, I mean, I'd engaged in politics a long time ago, but I had engaged in a long time. Mm -hmm. And first with Prop 64 and then with the campaign to reform the tech industry, I wind up meeting all these politicians. And it turns out they are by nature people who like meeting people. They like hearing what people think. Now, their incentives are misaligned because the incentives are to protect the status quo because the people with the money like the way things are. Right. And the only way to change that is to bring way more people together who say, uh-uh, that doesn't work. We're going to have to change things. And that this summer is the proof that collective action can produce change. And, you know, if you look in Washington, we got by far the biggest climate change legislation, not just in this country, but I think in any country. And I mean, seriously, I did not see that coming. That was amazing. And people have made their voices heard. You saw the student loan debt forgiveness. Again, Biden showed no interest in that, but enough voices came together and pushed hard enough that it happened. I think the same thing can happen at the federal level on cannabis. I mean, if they go out and just poll people, it's really obvious that people care. But too many of the folks who care about cannabis don't vote and for sure don't make their positions felt. Yeah. Because yeah. people, people, you know, you look at this thing and, I mean, in deeply Republican territories, cannabis polls really high. But the people who really care about it don't vote on that issue. And so they don't throw out the people who are the problem. Well, right. I mean, oh, that's, true. that's a fixable situation. That's a fixable situation. And the thing is, you know, again, this isn't a, you know, if you like cannabis, great. But if you don't, it's still your issue because there's something that you like that these people will eventually come and take away from you. Right. It's, if you're a woman, it's your reproductive rights, which they've already taken away from you. You know, if you're black or brown, it's your basic civil rights. Yeah. 
you know, if you're a child, it's your, your right to a decent education. If you're a child, it's your right to economic opportunity. I mean, all these things are being taken away from you because the current environment rewards wealth disproportionately. Correct. But it doesn't have to be that way. No. We can stop that. Right, right. And we can we can hold the people that we vote in, you know, we can hold them to their promises as long as there's enough of us that actually get active. So, yeah, so, yeah. So, and the thing is, it's just not that hard. And you right. can do it in steps. You don't have to go 40 hours a week. No, you right? don't. What I'm saying is, is, is like if, if what you do is if you get 10 people together and you organize a meeting with your member of Congress in their local office when they come, you know, it doesn't matter where you live, your member of Congress will have a town hall meeting somewhere, right? You get 10 people go there and say, this issue really matters to us. And 10 people show up. And do that, I guarantee you, somebody's going to take notes. Yeah. And they're going to go, holy Jesus, we just had this meeting and 10 people showed up and they were all concerned about it. Yeah. And they were actually organized. And the minute they realize you're organized, then they go, oh, I got to pay attention. Right? And don't you don't need to be hysterical. You just go, look, the current status quo is ridiculous. It's costing the state money. It's harming the civil rights of black and brown people. Right? It's terrible for the environment. It's terrible for labor. Those are all winning issues. It's true. It's true. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to be part of the decision-making process or do you want special interests to make it for you? Well, yeah. It's particularly given the way the United States is structured, your default position is that you get to be part of it. Right. And in California, at least, you know, we still have most of those rights. Right. And, you know, it's it, the real issue is that the folks for whom cannabis is important have far too often chosen not to engage politically. And that's certainly their right. But you lose the right to complain if you don't like the outcome. That's true. That's if, true. If you're not going to participate. Yeah, you can't you can't say anything if you don't play. And that's that's so well, important. Well, you can say something. You can say something, but nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's just uh, you're an armchair philosopher if you don't take action. So talking about people getting together and spreading the word and in your case, also good vibes. Moon Alice, what's going on with it and when are they playing next? OK, so Moon Alice has been a band that's been around since uh, 2007. We were originally put together by the producer T-Boat Burnett. He had just won a Grammy for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he decided he was going to make a series of albums of Americana music. You know, Oh Brother, Where Art There was kind of bluegrass. So he was going to make other kinds of Americana music. And he was going to do it kind of regionally. And he started with three bands. He had Elvis Costello doing kind of a New York folk thing. He had us doing... San Francisco psychedelic. And then the third thing was going to do a new Nashville thing. And it was Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. <sighs> and of course that album became Raising Sand. It won the Grammy for best album and our album and, and Elvis's album literally disappeared without a trace. And, oh, no. but our album, our album was really cool. Cause T-Bone said to us, look, you got to create a new band. It's got a new legend, new music, but in the style of psychedelic San Francisco. And so the original band had Jack Cassidy from the Jefferson Airplane. I love Jack. G.E. Smith from the Saturday Night Live band. Barry Slass, Pete Sears from Jefferson uh, Starship, and Rod Stewart before that. You know, it was, it was, it was, a, you know, we took it really seriously. The first album, which was made by T-Bone, is like, it, it, it's astonishing. I'm very proud of it. And then, you know, of course, with Raising Sand getting all the attention, T-Bone stopped paying attention to everything else. And so we kind of disappeared. And so we, we were forced to focus online. And so I had been involved with Facebook. And so I focused all our energy in 2007 on using Facebook to build Moon Alice. And when It's 420 somewhere happened, it really just took off. And so Facebook became a thing online. Or sorry, if Moon Alice became a thing on Facebook. So that was a big deal. So we've gone through a few incarnations. So, uh, G.E. Smith got the chance to 
go directly from our band to Roger Waters band to play the wall tour and then all the tours and all of that. So that was pretty cool. And right. then Jack went back to, to hot tuna. Leorma. John, John Molo joined the band as the drummer. We became a lot smaller. We were five people for a while, then four people. And then, uh, and then in 2019, we were kind of bored and we were at a festival and two sets of friends of ours were there, the new Chambers brothers, which was Lester Chambers, mm -hmm. who had been the original singer in the original Chambers mm -hmm. brothers, and his son Dylan. So they're the new Chambers brothers. And then three sisters known as the T-Sisters, who sing tight harmony in Americana style. And we were all hanging around and we we're all kind of bored. We said, well, how about if we joined forces? And so we put together this band and started playing a review that was a combination of the psychedelic soul of the uh, Chambers Brothers, the kind of uh, hippie tight harmony of the T-Sisters and the jam band of Moon Owls. And it, it's an instant hit. And in fact, it was crazy. We had the crowds just exploded. People loved this thing. And we were all set to do this huge tour that was going to begin at the end of March of 2020. And of course, COVID hits. And so the whole thing gets blown up. 70 show tour. And we were literally marooned. Um, we used COVID though to record a bunch of music and, uh, we got a record label oh, work. And so, so if you have a streaming service, oh. yeah. So if you have a streaming service, whether it's Apple or Spotify or, uh, Amazon or, uh, any of the others go to Moon Owls, like us, check out the music. We, we basically embrace psychedelic soul in its entirety. And so we went from being a review of three kinds of music to being focused on, on the style from the Chambers Brothers. So I think time has come today. We've made a new recording of that, which it's a great song. I've got, I just truly love it. Right. But we do all that stuff and we, we've been writing a lot of new material in that style. And it's the live shows are infectious and it, and when I say infectious, I mean, it's COVID. So you have to be careful. So we only play outdoors. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and, uh, you know, because we got to protect Lester, we got to protect Pete. And I mean, some of us are of a certain age. So we just got to, we've got to be really careful. And, you know, the thing is, I don't know where, where y'all live, but um, between here, the next month and a half, we have a lot of gigs in, um, in the Bay Area, um, broadly defined. And um, bear with me a sec while I, I get the actual um, the dates here. So we're going to start um, in Santa Rosa on September 8th. We'll be playing at KRSH at the Crush. They have this backyard concert series. Oh, free. nice. Unbelievable. So if you're anywhere near Santa Rosa on September 8th, uh, we did this last year. It was so much fun. Uh, on September 10th, we'll be at June Lake at the June Lake Jam Fest. Uh, that, that's, you know, in the Sierras, it's just an extraordinary environment. Um, on September 16th, we'll be in Virginia City with an outdoor show at the Red Dog Saloon, right? Where the, you know, the original poster, San Francisco poster artist thing started. On the 17th, we'll be at the Ain't Necessarily Dead Fest in Auburn. Oh, right that's on. That's a big free outdoor show. We were there with Stu Allen, and that's a, be a great thing. September 18th, we'll be at uh, Clear Lake Oaks. Uh, we're doing a benefit concert for the uh, KPFZ radio station at Cash Creek Vineyards. That will be, again, I think, I don't, I don't know what, I guess they're charging something for that, but not too much. Then October 4th, uh, we're going to be at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. Oh, and, that's uh, such a great weekend. Or sorry, no, I, sorry. I, actually, I got that wrong. Uh, it's, it's um, I don't know why this isn't on the calendar. It's actually the Sunday before that. So it's the 2nd of October, we're going to be at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. And that's a big, giant free show. That will be, I guarantee it, an extraordinary experience. Then on the 4th, which is two days later, we'll be playing outdoors at the chapel in the Mission in San Francisco in a double feature, Moon Alice, and then a showing of Summer of Soul, which is the extraordinary documentary of the Harlem Culture Festival of 1969 uh, that Questlove made. Yeah. that is all the best black entertainers of 1969. And the film begins with the Chambers Brothers. Oh, that's awesome. Chambers Brothers. So Les, Lester is featured twice in that in that film. And if you've never seen it, it, I think things on Hulu, it's just unbelievable. It's like Stevie Wonder when he's 19, you know, Mahalia Jackson, 
uh, Nina Simone, uh, Sly and the Family Stone at their absolute peak, uh, you know, the uh, Staples singers. And it just goes on and on. Fifth Dimension, it truly extraordinary, extraordinary film. The same summer as Woodstock, it was filmed beautifully. It sat in somebody's basement for 50 years and Questlove dug it up and wow. made a brilliant thing and won the won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Yeah, I remember. So we're going to do an outdoor show, double feature. We'll play a full show, and then we'll show the movie. Oh, that's so cool. And it's so cool that Lester's in the beginning and the end. He's Well, and that's the thing. And the thing is, to be in a band with Lester Chambers, I mean, you know, the Chambers brothers were, they started in 1965, right? And, you know, but so they had a, a, a big hit with People Get Ready. Right, which they didn't write, but they recorded like the year it came out. They were super close to that whole scene. And then they did Time Has Come Today. And in 1968, that was a monster hit. And they go to England in early 69. And who greets them and entertains them while they're there? The Beatles. Wow. Because, you know, in the music business, the Chambers Brothers were this whole the psychedelic soul thing. They basically invented it. And you know, what happened is that Sly and the Family Stone took that start and then took it to funk, right? And then George Clinton and Robert Fuckadelic come along and took it to extreme funk, right? right? So that whole thing went through this massive transition, but it started, you know, they, they weren't Motown, these guys. They were, they were, this was a hippie band, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, it, you know, and Lester, I mean, he's so soulful, but he also, there's so much history there. And our band, you know, our value, there's a song called Love, Peace, and Happiness, and that's the value system that we espouse, right? And we look like America. We're black and white. We're young and old. We're male and female, all in one band. And it's a, a family that, unlike any, you know, all of us have been in bands our whole lives, right? I mean, you know, it's, you know, Jason Crosby, who's our keyboard player, also tours with Jackson Brown, was with Jenny Lewis, John McLaughlin, and the, you know, the farewell of Mahavishnu Orchestra, and before that with Robert Randolph, Susan Tedeschi, you know, I've been in a zillion bands. He would say there's nothing quite like this vibe. You know, Pete Steers, who got his start playing with, with uh, uh, Rod Stewart, right, uh, Maggie, Maggie May, and all those hits. And then, yeah was a founding member of Jefferson Starship, right? And he just goes, this, this is different. John Mola, who, you know, went to college with Bruce Hornsby, was the original member of the range, um, you know, played in the other ones, and then Phil Esch and Friends and all the things that followed from that. You know, same thing. And it, it, there's something wild about the chemistry of this thing. And if come and see it. But if you have any streaming service of any kind, look up Moon Alice. It's one word, M-O-O-N-A-L-I-C-E. And there's a lot of stuff on there, but the new stuff. So there's an EP of Moon Alice, one, and there's a bunch of extra songs that we put out since. And then the second EP comes out in October, right about the time of Hardly Strictly. And you know, there's a lot more coming. We just recorded 15 new songs, so there'll be two more EP coming after this. I'm excited to hear and, them. Uh, yeah, and 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 it's it's music, right? But we're trying. To live the thing we talk about. We're trying to show you what collective action can do. And, you know, the band's not political per se. You know, it's not like we're sitting there, we're not going to lecture you. We're just going to try to be a positive example. And cannabis, let's face it, you know, that's part of that scene too. Because cannabis tends to make people better. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And, um, I mean, and I show... you don't even have to partake. You don't even have to partake to be better off. Yeah. It's just, it kind of smooths things out, takes away rough edges, lets people be their best selves. And it goes really well with music. <laughs> it goes really well with music. And it's, it's inherently funny, which is super helpful. Yeah. And anyway, sir, I want to thank you for having me. Thank on. you so I much did. for for joining me today. And if anyone wanted to follow you on social media, how should they do that? So I only I so because I fought Facebook forever, I don't do that anymore. But uh, but Moon Alice is on on 
Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm on Twitter as at Moon Alice. Uh, but if you look at for Moon Alice on any social, that's the best way to do it. And just recognize the only one I do myself is the Twitter one. Uh, everything else is is done by fans of our band. Thank you so much, Roger. It's a pleasure spending time with you as always. And thank you for uh, the great conversation. We have a lot of work to do. We, we do, but let's do it together. Okay. Yes. If we do it together, it, it, it lightens the load. It sure does. All right. All right. You take You're care. The best. Love to all. <laughs> Love Bye -bye. to you. Bye. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>